0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Luke chapter 24. I said last week that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was part one of the most significant event that's ever happened in the human race. This week we study part two, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is a highly debated topic. It's denied by atheist scholars, as you would expect. What's surprising, though, is that it's also denied by so-called Christian scholars. Rudolf Boltzmann was one of the fathers of this in the early 20th century. He just says it plain. He says, a corpse cannot come to life again and climb out of the grave. Right, not usually. This book, The Last Week, by Marcus Borg and John Dominic Krosh, and these guys are heads of what's known as the Jesus Seminar, which is a, a panel of skeptical New Testament scholars that sort through the Gospels to try to figure out what really happened, what did Jesus really say, what is the historical core of truth behind all of this mythology and all this supernatural stuff that's in there. What's the real Jesus of history, not the Christ of faith? And so they discount all the miracles and most of what happens in the Gospels under the guise of scholarliness. But in this book, what they put forward is they say, well, you know, maybe instead of the resurrection accounts being historical, maybe these are just parables. And they say, seeing the Easter stories as parable affirms, believe whatever you want about whether the stories happened this way. Now let's talk about what they mean. You know, Jesus would tell these parables. These were fictional accounts to prove a point. Well, never mind that the resurrection accounts look nothing like the parables that Jesus told. Never mind that he typically starts a parable by saying, and then Jesus told them a parable. (laughs) Whereas these are presented as history. Also, never mind what the apostle Paul has to say about the resurrection, who says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless, your faith is useless, we apostles are lying, and we should be pitied more than anyone in the world. Paul doesn't seem to think, well, whether that happened or not, let's just talk about what it means for our lives. No, he says the opposite. He says if it didn't happen, then Christianity is false, our preaching is false, our faith is false, we're liars, and we're pitiful. And that's the tone in a lot of these so-called scholarly articles denying the resurrection. They're like, oh, isn't that cute that you believe in that? Let me shed, shed some light on this subject. Well, when I was reading this book, one of the points that they put forward is that when you read the different accounts of the resurrection in all four Gospels, they say these accounts are inherently contradictory, cannot be fit together with one another, and we should take that as evidence that it never happened. Here's Robert Miller, another Jesus seminar scholar. He says, What do you make of all the disparity, all the contradictions between Matthew and Mark and Luke and John's version of this? Perhaps you conclude the early Christians couldn't keep their stories straight. Or maybe nobody knew what had actually happened. Or maybe you would conclude that the differences are indications that the stories were never meant to be taken literally. In any case, the many striking disparities would reinforce your doubts about the historical reliability of the stories. And I've got to be honest, when I, when I read that book by Borg and Krosh in a number of years ago, it, it bothered me, this argument right here. And so I set out to study this topic and to see, are these inherently contradictory or can they be fit in together with one another? And I found that, yes, indeed, you can fit them together quite nicely. Many people have done it. What I'm going to give you tonight as we study through Luke's account of the resurrection I'm also going to splice in a number of eyewitness details from the other Gospels, and I'm going to attempt to show just one way that these, these accounts can all be fit together. And as we read along, we'll present some compelling evidence for why we should believe this, too. So, in order to aid in our discussion here, I've got a map. <clears throat> this map is a rough sketch of Jerusalem in the time of Christ, as best as we can reconstruct. You can see those brown things. Those are the roads, the main roads leading in and around Jerusalem. You can see the city walls. That's kind of the thick line that's got gaps at points. Those are the gates into the city, as best as we can tell. You can see the temple. is pretty obvious. There's There's a few buildings throughout the city. And with some of those, the specific location isn't necessarily that important, just the fact that there was a place where people went to in the city. And out on the east of the city, you can see the amount of olives. That's my attempt at topography. <laughs> if you cross your eyes long enough, it will actually come out of the screen three-dimensional. <laughs> so just keep trying. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And Thursday night, we'll just pick up the action from last week just to try to Get everybody up to speed in case you weren't here the last couple of weeks. There was a house they were having to Passover at. And at this house, let's go ahead and get our legend up on the screen, all right? <laughs> so you got JC. That's Jesus Christ. That's pretty <laughs> obvious. You got P slash J. That's Peter and John. Those guys feature prominently in the crucifixion and resurrection accounts. The D is the rest of the disciples. And those guys are important too, but they don't stick out like Peter and John do in these... There it is. And what the scriptures tell us is that the Mount of Olives, east of the city, that after Passover dinner, they headed out of the city and out to the Mount of Olives. So it might look something like this, okay? (laughs) They're out there, they're praying, and then the guards show up. That's the G. Roman guards, also some temple guards in there. They would have probably been dispatched from the fortress of Antonia on the northwest corner of the temple, which will show up in the book of Acts. So the guards head out to the Mount of Olives to arrest Jesus. Peter tries to stab a guy in the face, cuts his ear off. Jesus heals him. Jesus says, Let these guys go, take me instead. So the other disciples fall back, and the guards take Jesus and they lead him in through the city to the house of the high priest. Well, Peter and John, they double back around, we saw. And they'd follow the party. John gets him into the courtyard of the high priest. Peter denies Jesus three times, of course. We saw that. Where did the rest of the disciples go? I'm guessing they probably went back out to Bethany. That's where they'd been staying that week. They'd been going into the city and then back out staying there, probably with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And so that leaves us then in the city here. Sometime Thursday night, Peter denies Jesus three times and then disappears, weeping in the streets of Jerusalem. We saw that Friday morning, the whole procession, maybe John was with him, I don't know. They move up to the palace for this kind of ping pong between Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate. Pilate agrees finally to crucify Jesus at the hands of this angry mob. And then we saw that they lead Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem up out to the northwest corner of the city, and they hang Jesus on the cross. Well, John's not the, John is there during this time. This is, in fact, Jesus looks down from the cross. Uh, there were some women there as well. Mary Magdalene and other women were there. Jesus' mom was one of the ladies that was there at the cross. In fact, he entrusts her care to John as Jesus is hanging there on the cross. He says, I want you to take care of my mom. And this is where we pick up the action on Friday evening. We saw last week Jesus hung on the cross. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty for sin. He died in your place, if you're willing to put your trust in him. And that at the moment that he cried out, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He gave up his spirit. He breathed his last. And the Son of God died. Luke tells us when the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. As this might have been where John disappeared, we don't know. He's not mentioned for a while. Also, the guards may have taken off sometime around this point here. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. They could not leave the foot of the cross. I guess that makes sense, especially if his mother was there. They're there watching the aftermath, still stunned that Jesus is dead. Scripture tells us there was a good, righteous man named Joseph who was a member of the Jewish High Council. Luke doesn't mention his buddy Nicodemus, but Nicodemus was also a member of the High Council, the Sanhedrin. And these guys end up at the foot of the cross, but not before they go to Pilate to ask a favor. The reason was because Joseph had not agreed with the decision and actions of the other religious leaders. He was against the crucifixion of Christ. He was from the town of Arimathea in Judea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man. He went to Pilate, and he asked for Jesus' body. This might have been political suicide, But he's like, I don't care. I'm not going to be a secret believer any longer. Him and Nicodemus, they come out into the open. They ask for the body of Christ. Normally, the body of a criminal would not be given to the family, but would be flipped into a common grave to be devoured by dogs. Actually, the Romans liked to leave them on the cross, but the Jews wouldn't have that. The Romans liked to leave them on there until the vultures picked the bodies clean. Again, as a deterrent. The Jews didn't like to leave people hanging on the cross overnight because of a passage in Deuteronomy. And so... They would take him down and they said, can we have the body instead of going into the common grave for criminals? And, you know, rich people, they often tend to get their favors answered. And so Pilate agreed. And Joseph and Nicodemus took the body down from the cross, wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. Yes, so the body comes down from the cross and they take it over to the tomb and the women follow along. A tomb, it says there was a a tomb nearby, actually. There was a garden there as well. And so it was a short distance to the tomb of Christ. And this was a new tomb. There were no other bodies in there. And I don't know if Joseph bought this just for Jesus or if this was something he was intending on using at some point, but he had this tomb. And it says they put him in that new tomb right there. This was done late on Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. Yes, they had to rest on the Sabbath. And so normally they would anoint the body with all these spices, but they didn't have time to get their spices together. And these were not embalming fluids, these spices. They were just things they would put around the body as part of their burial custom. But because it was so late on Friday, they didn't have time to get it all together and get back to the tomb in time before the Sabbath hit. And they, they, basically the Sabbath was like a curfew where you just, had to, it was kind of, you just had to hang out where you were. Couldn't travel very far on the Sabbath. As his body was taken away, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. The gospel accounts are very clear on this. They were not confused as to where the body was put. They saw exactly where it was. That's going to come in as an important detail later in the story. They went home, prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. But by the time they were finished, the Sabbath had begun. So they rested as required by law. And so... There was apparently maybe some house in Jerusalem. I don't, I don't know if they would have had time to make it all the way back to Bethany. It looks like there were some house in Jerusalem where Peter and John end up back at, perhaps. This is just my hypothetical reconstruction here, okay? And the rest of the women may have split up, and some of them went back to that house. Uh, Joanna was one of the ladies who was there. Her husband worked for Herod, so she may have just gone back to the palace. Her husband was actually the manager of Herod's household. And so she may have ended up back in the palace where the rich royalty were. And in Matthew 27 tells us another important detail. It says, the next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, Sir, we remember that that deceiver once said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise from the dead. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' enemies got it better than his disciples, (laughs) who were still confused on this point. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. They wanted to put a seal on it. And this will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. So sealing it would have involved some sort of a wax seal to see if it had been opened. But the more important thing was the Roman guard. They said, if they steal the body, we're going to be worse off than we were at first because we can't kill him anymore because he's already dead. Pilate replied, take the guards, secure it the best you can. Probably a squadron of a little uh, unit of four guards that were put in charge here. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it there have been four guards. They would have rotated through in shifts. Those guards, they had to guard that body. If if you're a Roman guard and you lost your prisoner, you'd be executed. So this is very serious. These were not like rent-a-cops, okay? <laughs> These were like marines that they put in charge of guarding this tomb. They were tough. And so on Saturday evening, what do we have? Well, we've got the guards posted to the tomb there with Jesus. It's possible that some of them may have gone all the way back out to Bethany. We don't know. But if we recap the stage before the resurrection narrative starts, just for those of you keeping score at home, here's what I've got on my scorecard. I've got Bethany, eight or nine disciples. We don't really know where Thomas was. I don't know if he was there, if he'd taken off by now. He doesn't show up on Sunday. Maybe Mary Magdalene and some others like this guy named Cleopas who shows up in Luke's account. Jerusalem house, maybe Peter and John, maybe Jesus' mom, Mary, Mary's sister, Salome. The palace, maybe Joanna was there at the palace, one of the women disciples of Jesus. The tomb is Jesus and some guards. And in the billiard room, I've got Professor Plum with a candlestick. <laughs> and so we want to harmonize these gospels here. Harmonizing is where you take two different accounts and you fit them together. You you, you see, how do these fit together? In a way that's not contradictory. This is something we just naturally tend to do, unless you're like a scholar that's looking to show how the resurrection accounts contradict and make no effort at all to harmonize, which is pretty annoying. People talk about these contradictions in the Gospels. We had this guy speak at Zenos one time who was talking about all these contradictions he found in the Gospels. And he was obviously using contradiction in the most wooden sense of the term, making no effort to fit them together. No common sense at all. And when you're harmonizing the Gospels, the main principle you need to keep in mind is selectivity. Selectivity. Like any good storyteller, they don't include every single detail. That's a good way to be a bad storyteller. Is you include irrelevant details, it bogs your story down. So they're Selective. In fact, the gospel writers themselves say that they're selective. They're selective with regard to the events that they report. This is why all the gospels cover different events. And some of them cover the same event. But there's a lot of unique material in the gospels. And so John says at the end of his gospel, the very last verses, he says, Jesus also did many other things. If they're all written down, I suppose the whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written. These guys had one scroll-sized book to work with. And so John's like, I just want to go on record that I didn't include everything. And you should keep that in mind as well. They knew there was a lot of other things Jesus did. They're also selective with regard to reporting words that people speak. It's well known in ancient writings that speeches had to be compressed. You know, the longest sermon we've got by Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. You know how long it takes to read that out loud? Maybe 10 minutes if you're reading real slow. You think the longest Jesus ever spoke was 10 minutes? No, he'd speak all day. What they would report on is they would, they would report highlights. They would report on what ancient rabbis would do. They would take their teaching and they would boil it down to a form that was easily memorizable. It would have rhythm. It would have meter. It would rhyme sometimes. It was catchy. It was, uh, they knew they had to do this so their guys could memorize it. And so they would report the boiled-down version of these speeches. They would capture the essence of it, the content of it, but they they couldn't write the whole thing. Also, the Gospels are literature that's in translation. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Our Gospels are all in Greek. And if you've ever taken a foreign language, you know that translating from one to the other, there's a couple different ways that can be translated to capture the sense of it. And so when you're compressing and translating... You're just going to have some differences. You know, one writer that maybe there was a speech that was four minutes long. One writer includes these two sentences. The other one includes these two sentences. And there's some overlap. And so just because the Gospels report different things that the angels of the tomb said, doesn't mean they're contradictory. They probably said a lot of things. And they're boiling it down and giving us a summary of it. The other thing we need to keep in mind is reporting on the characters who are present. They don't say everybody who's there all the time. They point out key figures. For example, if you go, go home from CT tonight, somebody's like, well, who spoke tonight? They'd be like, well, this dude named Scott spoke. Well, okay, that would be true. But there's a lot of other people that, are, that have spoken tonight and will speak. People prayed beforehand. People prayed afterward. There's going to be some sharings. You're going to talk to people afterward. Are you contradicting reality by saying, I spoke? No, you're just doing what normal humans do. You're you're singling out the main speaker, and you're not mentioning a lot of the other details. Let me give you two examples of this from within these accounts of of the same writers. Let me give you one from John. John chapter 20, verse 1. Check it out. He says, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found the stone had been rolled away. So who was there? Was it just Mary Magdalene? Does that contradict the other gospel accounts that said there were multiple women there? Let's read the next verse. Chapter 20, verse 2. And so she runs back and she tells the disciples, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Now, either Mary Magdalene refers to herself in the first person plural, we, (laughs) or John only mentioned her in verse one. But of course he faithfully reports what she said in verse two. There were other women there and they were all confused. And we'll see this, okay? (laughs) Everybody was confused, okay? The ladies got it bury better than anybody. <laughs> what about Luke 24? Here's one more example I said I would give you. Luke tells us Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. So who was it? Was it just Peter? Is this contradicting the other accounts? Well, 12 verses later, these two dudes, Clopas and his buddy, are reporting about the events from that day. And what do they say? Some of our men ran out to see, him, and sure enough, his body was gone. Luke knows there were multiple guys. He only mentioned Peter for some reason. I don't know why. For the sake of the story. Though later he mentions faithfully what Clopas was saying to the guy he's talking to, which turns out to be Jesus. And so selectivity, we've got to keep that in mind as we, as we move into the resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and take a look at these accounts here. So here we have it. Luke 24, verse 1. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And thus we have our first contradiction in the resurrection accounts. Here it is, folks, one pointed to by the literature on this. Luke said very early on Sunday, Mark says just at sunrise. John says while it was still dark. And Matthew says as the new day was dawning. I'm not kidding. This is one that's pointed to. You've got to be kidding me. This is one of the contradictions in the gospel resurrection accounts? Aren't those four ways to say the same thing? Or if the ladies are leaving from different houses at different times to meet up, it's possible some left right before sun up, and on the way the sun rose, and they got to the other house after the sun had just risen. I think it's pitiful that this is counted as a contradiction, and I, I reject that contradiction. So they're moving in here to the city, but on the way, something pretty remarkable happens. Meanwhile, back at the tomb, look at what happens here. At some point that morning, Jesus' body is gone. (laughs) It doesn't tell us how this happened. All, All we know is when you show up, his grave clothes are there. I don't know if he just disappeared, like when a Jedi Knight dies and gets raptured. You know, I don't know if he walks out of the tomb naked looking for clothes, like the Terminator. All we know is he's gone, the grave clothes are there. Matthew tells us, suddenly, there was a great earthquake. Whoa! And an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning. His clothing was as white as snow. And the guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Whoa! (laughs) Things are getting crazy out of the tomb. Angel heads inside, apparently, to wait. Mark tells us on the way, the ladies were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? That would have been a big problem. How are they going to get their spices in there if the tomb is sealed? Well, when they get there, they find a different problem. <laughs> the guards are passed out, maybe in the bushes, I don't know. And there's no body to anoint. they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, Luke tells us, and I think this is remarkable—that women were the initial witnesses. This is not who you'd put at the tomb if you're making up a resurrection story in the early church. Women were not viewed as credible; their testimony was discounted in court. They—they uh, they were not reliable witnesses. And so why would you put women as the first ones at the tomb? This is what's known as the criteria of embarrassment, and it points to the authenticity of these resurrection narratives. In fact, you can even read the embarrassment in the early church. There's a series of debates between Origen and this guy named Celsus. Celsus was a skeptic who was attacking Christianity in the 100s AD. So this is very early, some of the earliest writings we have outside of Scripture. And look at what Celsus says as he's denying the resurrection. It's funny. Even back then, people were denying the resurrection. He says, okay, so what? After death, Jesus rose again and he showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? Celsus asks. A hysterical female, as you say. Those are his words. (laughs) And perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by this same sorcery. Yeah, so he's all over this. Women first to the tomb. You guys are idiots. Well, I think the best explanation for that is that the women were the first ones there and that the tomb was empty and that this whole story is true because all the resurrection accounts put women there first. Well, John tells us at this point, it looks like the ladies split up. When Mary Magdalene got to the tomb and found the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, She ran and she found Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So she doesn't even wait to go into the tomb. She just goes when she sees that the tomb, the the, the stone is rolled away. So here she takes off. She finds Peter and John. Meanwhile, the other ladies, it says in Luke, they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. They go into the tomb. And as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. Which brings us to another major contradiction in the resurrection narratives. Was it one man or two men? Was it one angels or two angels? Which one was it? They can't get their story straight. Well, remember we said there's selectivity in the characters that they mention? Two of the accounts only mention one of them. Also, were they men or angels? Well, if you read your Bible, you know when angels show up, they look like dudes. And so, yes, there were angels that looked like dudes. I mean, this guy, he's, he's wearing a dazzling robe, okay? That's an angel. Come on, people. I reject this contradiction. The women were terrified. They bowed with their faces to the ground. And then the men asked, Are you looking among the dead for someone who's alive? Good question. They didn't know he was alive yet. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. The best news ever. Remember what he told you back in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and that he'd rise again on the third day? Didn't they remember that he had said this? So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. So they take off. And this brings us to a third major contradiction in the resurrection accounts. The ladies leaving the tomb. Luke says they rushed back to tell everyone what had happened, even though they were frightened, he said earlier, right? Matthew, though, says they were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. But Mark says they fled from the tomb trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. So, which one was it? Did they tell anybody or not? Were they very frightened, or filled with great joy, or trembling, or bewildered? Which one is it? How did the women feel? It's a complicated question. <laughs> Doesn't really require a biblical degree of any sort. I mean you know I gotta be careful I say this, all right? <clears throat> I don't know if these Jesus seminar guys are married or have ever had a girlfriend. (laughs) But is it possible that a group of women might feel multiple strong emotions (laughs) right in a row or maybe even at the same time? I mean, on a day like this, I think even a normal person would have a lot of feelings. (laughs) Did they tell anybody or not? Well, maybe they didn't tell anybody at first, and then they told some people. I mean, obviously Mark knew about this. They must have told him for him to record they didn't tell anybody. I reject this contradiction. (laughs) Matthew 28 tells us that as the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. So the guards come to, they make their way into the city. And it says a meeting with the elders was called. So they're going to the priests, they're going to the elders. Why aren't they going to the Roman authorities? Because if they go to the Roman authorities, they're in big trouble. They go to the only people who might be sympathetic to their cause, who have any power. And they tell them what happened. And they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. And they said, you got to say Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. And if the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get into trouble. Maybe they need to bribe the governor as well. But Matthew tells us the guards accepted the bribe and said what they were told to say, and their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. And so what Matthew inadvertently gives us 30 years after the fact or so is when he's writing, he gives us the only available cover story for what the opponents of Christianity were saying to explain the empty tomb. And this is the stolen body theory. The stolen body theory. In fact, there's a lot of theories as, as far as the empty tomb, but you know, the stolen body theory... I don't know how plausible that is. John Warwick Montgomery says it passes the bounds of credibility that the early Christians could have manufactured such a tale and then preached it among those who might easily have refuted it simply by producing the body of Jesus. Or J.N.D. Anderson. Any one of their hearers could have visited the tomb and come back again between lunch and whatever may have been the equivalent of afternoon tea. What a great company of the priests and many hard-headed Pharisees have been impressed with the proclamation of a resurrection, which was, in fact, no resurrection at all. Think of the number of witnesses, over 500. Think of the character of the witnesses, men and women who gave the world the highest ethical teaching it's ever known. Even the opponents of Christianity would say things like that. This is the highest ethical standard ever, and it's built on a lie? Who, even on the testimony of their enemies, lived it out in their lives. Yeah, so the disciples really fought through that Roman guard to steal the body. And why would the soldiers go around telling people that the body was stolen? Wouldn't that look bad for them? Isn't that something they should have been executed for? Now, there's a lot of theories for the empty tomb. The disciples stole the body theory. I just don't see how they would have fought through the guards to get that body away. And honestly, what good is that going to do them? Most of the disciples went to their deaths for their testimony that they saw the risen Lord. Now, it's not that they died for a lie, because a lot of people have died for a lie. They died for their own testimony of what they saw. And that's different. There's the wrong tomb theory. This is the theory that says, the ladies show up at tomb 1B, and it's empty, and they're like, oh, he's risen! And they take off, and it turns out he was in tomb 1C the whole time. And by the time they figured it out, They just went with it. Well, again, wouldn't that be pretty easy to refute, for the authorities to refute? They could say, oh, really, Jesus rose from the dead? You mean this Jesus in this wheelbarrow? He's not looking very resurrected. There's the, he only looked like he was dead theory. This is the theory that says he only looked like he was dead. But think about that. Were you here last week? Did you you see what they do in crucifixion? You're telling me? He went through all of that and went into a comatose state, was loaded into the tomb, and then the the stone was sealed. And meanwhile, on Saturday, he comes back to his senses, wriggles out of his grave clothes, rolls away the multiple-ton stone, fights off the guard, and then scampers over the hills of Judea like the Final scene in the sound of music? (laughs) This is what you're telling me? No. No way. There's the hallucination theory. And people do hallucinate sometimes, right? But what we don't have is any occurrence of a mass hallucination. You know, there there were resurrection appearances where he appeared to a dozen guys, 20 guys, 30 people, men and women, mixed together. He's, Paul says there was one time he appeared to over 500 people at once. You don't have hallucinations where all 500 people see the same thing. That's an unknown psychological phenomenon. You know, and, you know it's one thing for little Jimmy to have an imaginary friend. It's another thing when his imaginary friend shows up for dinner, starts eating a piece of broiled fish. That's when you know there's something more going on here. I mean, there's other theories, lesser known. Like uh, William Lane Craig was having a debate with Bart Ehrman one time, and Ehrman was like, well, what if Jesus had a twin brother that nobody knew about? <laughs> and somebody was like, is that Jesus over there? Turns out it's his brother, Johnny. Which I guess, you know, maybe that theory could work. But you just have to explain how Johnny ascended into heaven <laughs> while everybody was watching. How Johnny passed through walls. How Johnny got the holes in his hands inside. Now, these, these empty tomb theories, they're no good. They're made by people that already came to the conclusion that, that miracles don't happen. And then they're trying to back their way into how to explain the evidence here. I just think there's too much. Well, back down to Mary Magdalene, we left her running down to tell Peter and John. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple, they start out for the tomb, running as fast as they can for that tomb. They were both running, but John tells us. The other disciple outran Peter (laughs) and reached the tomb first. Who won that race? This guy right here. John stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he didn't go in. Simon Peter, of course, arrives and goes right in. (laughs) And at that point, the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. And then they went home, back to wherever they were staying. Well, Mary Magdalene had also left at the same time, according to John, She didn't keep up with the guys. She must have taken a different route to the tomb, but she goes back to the tomb, stricken with grief, to see the spot where they had laid Jesus. John tells us she was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. Now, when Peter and John looked in, there was nothing. But what she saw were two white-robed angels, one at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. The eyewitness details here, Good liars don't make up details because it's more, more details you've got to keep straight. And yet we see it right here. Details. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. So she turns to leave and she saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. So Jesus shows up to her. Looks like before anybody else. Mary Magdalene. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. (laughs) A lot of people don't recognize Jesus in these resurrection appearances at first. Sir, she said, look, I love your garden, okay? it's Very nice. But If you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. I mean, what kind of sick gardener are you anyway? (laughs) Stealing bodies? (laughs) Mary, Jesus said. And she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. She recognizes him. She obviously throws her arms around him, and he says, Don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. I have a few things i got to do still here. Go find my brothers and give them this message. He gives a message to her to tell them. He disappears. Mary heads back to try to find the other disciples. And meanwhile, so we cut back to the other ladies who she split off from earlier. This crew heads back. They tell Peter and John that this guy named Clopas is there at this point as well. And after they tell Peter and John what happened, Luke tells us, Peter jumps up and ran to the tomb to look. It was probably a lot of trips to the tomb and back that day. It wasn't that far of a walk or run. So Peter heads back. Maybe there's some guys with him. We don't know. Stooping down, Peter peered in and saw the empty linen wrappings. And then he went home again, wondering what had happened. There's no angels there again when Peter shows up. There's angels for the ladies, but not for him. He heads back, Clopas takes off at that point, he heads out to Emmaus, this place, this city nearby, this village nearby, We'll get back to him. The ladies take off again to try to find the other disciples, I guess, but Matthew tells us that on the way to find them, maybe on their way back to Bethany, as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And so Jesus appears to the rest of the ladies now, and they ran to him and they grasped his feet and they worshipped him. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers, leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. So apparently, I guess he's talking about his brothers who didn't believe in him when he was alive. Well, they're going to believe in him when he makes a resurrection appearance to guys like James and his brother Jude. So they take off. They find the other disciples. Mary Magdalene also finds the disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. I'm assuming the disciples and the rest of the women, they meet back up at some point later that day. And we see several other appearances that Sunday. One was to this guy named Cleopas and his friend who was traveling on the road to Emmaus, which Luke includes this whole account for us. I don't have time to read that. Luke tells us that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus. And while they're headed, they meet this traveler along the way. He's walking with them. They're like, man, I'm so bummed out. And he's like, traveler's like, what happened? Well, the traveler was Jesus. And they're like, man, haven't you heard? Jesus got crucified. And Jesus starts explaining to them. He said, why are you so slow to believe the scriptures? And they're like, all right, whatever. Well, they sit down to have dinner. And when he goes to break the bread and, and give thanks for it, that's when they recognize him. And that's when Jesus disappears as well. Within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. They didn't care that it was late, that it was dangerous. They were heading back to tell everybody they had seen Jesus. So Cleopas and his buddy, they get back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and others who had gathered with them. Everybody's talking about it. The excitement of this day is hard to quantify. They said, they said to them, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. So he appeared to Peter at some point that day, not even recorded. And then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them. This is all Sunday late afternoon, Sunday evening. And it tells us that just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Boom, right there, through the locked door, through the walls, right there standing in the room. Jesus' resurrection body was different than the kind of body that he had before his death. Peace be with you, he said. So he appeared to the disciples without Thomas. He was the one missing. Well, the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened? He asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Well, because um, well, you died. <laughs> look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it's really me. Touch me. Make sure I'm not a ghost. Because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see that I do. And he spoke, and he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. You ever had someone you love die, wishing they would come back, and then it doesn't happen? These guys got that. They got Jesus back for a little while longer. So Jesus asked them, he said, look, you have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. <laughs> I love the Bible. <laughs> Jesus rises from the dead. And for my next trick, I will eat a piece of fish. <laughs> but they, they, didn't, you know, they knew ghosts couldn't eat food. So this is him proving to them that he was really risen from the dead, that this was a real body. They could not understand this. And it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures thus embarking on perhaps the greatest Bible study in the history of the world up until this time. One that they would be unpacking for the rest of their lives, not to mention the rest of the New Testament. Well, I just want to leave you guys with two questions. Two questions here related to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first one is this. What do you think is the best explanation for the evidence for the resurrection? How do you explain the empty tomb? How do you explain the embarrassing material, like women there are the first ones at the tomb, the first ones he appeared to? How do you explain the hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection? How do you explain the explosion of Christianity right from its very center where its Savior was crucified? How do you explain the fact that the apostles went to their deaths still holding to their eyewitness testimony? William Lane Craig... He says, as long as the existence of God is even possible, and events being caused by God cannot be ruled out. Yes, if you at least believe that it's possible that there is a God, then wouldn't you also have to believe it's possible that that God might intervene in history at points, or at least at a point? He says, to be sure, the historian ought first to seek natural causes. But when no natural cause can be found that plausibly accounts for the data, and a supernatural hypothesis presents itself as part of the historical context, right there when the event occurred, then the rational alternative would seem to be to choose the supernatural explanation. Yeah, I agree. My other question is this. Do you want to be resurrected someday? A lot of us are afraid of death. You should be. That is terrifying. What scripture says is that Jesus, though, when he died on the cross, he took the punishment you deserve if you're willing to put your trust in him. And when he rose from the dead, he guarantees that you too will have eternal life. He guarantees that the grave is no longer a dead end but it's a passageway into the greatest bliss that you'll ever know. He promises that on the last day he will call your name and he will exert his power and he will raise you from the dead and that you will spend forever with him. You see, this is really guys like Borg and Krashen. This is really what's behind. All of their explaining away the miracles and the resurrection and the crucifixion. And at the end of that book that I read by them, they lay their hand right on the table. Look at what they say. They say this this belief in the resurrection and the crucifixion leads to what they call a horrific theology that says God's judgment means we all deserve to suffer like this. But Jesus died in our place, and God can spare us because Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Well, they call that a horrific theology. I call that the best news I've ever heard in my life because I know that I deserve to suffer like Jesus and worse. And I believe Jesus died in my place. I've put my trust in him, not in some general sense, but personally I've gone and I've talked with him through prayer. I've asked him to pay for my sins. And now he says it's finished and God will spare you because I've died for you. Now, I agree more with the Apostle Paul who said, This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it, including you. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. And then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. And that's all we got for the book of Luke. Wow. Yes, thank you so much, Lord, that you've conquered death. You say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death is swallowed up in victory. And that if we put our faith in you. We know we'll be resurrected like you were, and we, we know we'll live forever with you. Thank you, God, that you've solved all of the great problems of the human race, all the problems we got ourselves into. I pray, Lord, for those of us here who are not Christians yet. That, at the very least, we'd investigate this more, but maybe we've had enough evidence and now it's time to reach out and to pray the prayer, asking you to reveal yourself, God. I pray that some of us would do that. I pray some of us would actually reach out to you and invite Jesus into their hearts and place their trust in him. Amen.